Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning, folks. My name is Andre, lead pastor at the city. As always, real good to have you join us for our online gathering. I'm joined here by our lovely band, volunteers, and staff. And so, make some noise. Come on, people. This is good. Miss all of y'all. Hope that you miss us too and are looking forward to having you back uh, in our physical services real soon. We'll have some news coming your way uh, in a couple of weeks. Well, folks, uh, I have been uh, out of action for a bit. Uh, some of you might have noticed that Andre has pretty much dropped off the grid uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, not doing any meetings. Uh, and that's because uh, if you follow my socials, uh, my entire family got uh, hand, foot, mouth disease uh, in consequential order. And so uh, my little girl got it first, and then I got it next. And then uh, because I love my wife and we do a lot of physical touch, I got it, gave it to her as well as a kind of gift. And so uh, we are uh, just coming to the end of this uh, very prolonged period of HMMD is about uh, been about three weeks, and uh, I tell people often when they text me, and uh, thank thank you so much to a bunch of you who have texted me, sent prayers and stuff. Uh, so appreciate uh, the love and concern from the community. Uh, I tell people often that I got a premium cat package of HMMD. I got basically every symptom uh, that's possible, and so uh, I was off my feet for some three days, couldn't walk, uh, and then you know I got really sad. Uh, let me tell you, let me, let me just, just be honest, you know, since we are such a transparent church. I binged two Korean dramas during the HFMD thing. I, I did. And it was my way of medicating my pain and, and dysfunction and boredom. And uh, those weren't great Korean dramas. I shan't tell you which ones I watched. But nevertheless, I tried to medicate uh, the pain, both physical and internal. You know, uh, one of the things, you know, that um, I, I realized... Uh, uh, midway through is that, you know, I, I, I at some point, you know, I, I, let me just be honest, I begin to feel really sorry for myself. I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible, this is so bad. And, um, you know, there was one day, you know, I was feeling really sad and, and things were just really gloomy and, and I was just like in bed and just not being a happy person. And at some point, you know, I, I, I thank God that uh, I was there, you know, I was just reading some scripture and just reading the gospels and Jesus and the way he uh, lived his life on the earth and the way he conducted himself and, the, and particularly the way he responded towards sickness and infirmity. And I looked at the life of Jesus and I looked at the words of scripture and something just rose up in me to say, this is not okay. This is not right. You know, I was told uh, often, you know, during the entire audio that this is just part and parcel of life, this is part and parcel of having a young child. And while I can agree with that statement on some level, there's something in me that goes, as believers, as people who've been given the gift of the Spirit, as people who have been recipients of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sake, that we should just sung. Something should rise up in us when we encounter these things to go that this is not okay. You know, one thing that I realized is that we are so, you know, in, in our modern age with our advances and all this kind of stuff, you know, we have grown tolerant and normalized much of what Jesus calls the works of the devil, the works of the enemy. And there must be something in us, you know, then we encounter, you know, sickness, infirmity, darkness, things that are evil to go, we 
have the power of Jesus. Christ has given us and vested authority in the church. He says he's given us all authority. And so this is something that we should exercise in faith. You know, very recently I bought uh, for Sage a little piano. Is this a little red piano? It's a hate piano. If you all know what hate is, it's maybe toy brand and it makes like fancy sounds and I spent some money on it and I bought it with such great love and intent for my child. I was like, she will love this piano. It's so expensive and I bet she would have the time of her life with piano. And so I put a piano in front of her one morning and uh, she slammed the keys real big. Uh, and then she stopped playing with it after some like two minutes and turned to her favorite toy, which is a packet of wet wipes. Now, it was my delight as a father, right, to buy her the toy. I was like, I have so much dreams for her. Like, I want her to play the piano. And I, I, I have so much delight, right, in purchasing the gift for her. But, you know, I also take delight in her using the gift, in her making use of this which I paid a price for, in her enjoying this gift. And I can't think of the same, I, I think of like, you know, God in, in relation to us in the same light. He has paid the price for us to walk in authority and power. He has paid the price for us to heal the sick. The Bible doesn't tell believers to go pray for the sick. It tells us to heal the sick. And God delights not only in the price that He's paid for us, He delights in us walking in that which He has paid for, power and authority. And I'm not even in my sermon topic uh, yet, but, but I'm, I'm just been burdened by this uh, uh, weight. You know, even as I look at Scripture, we need to lay hold of this, folks. We need to walk in power, folks. This is what Jesus has purchased and paid for on the cross. If you read scripture, whenever Jesus announces his kingdom, particularly uh, in the gospels, when you, when you read the book of James, it tells us to confess our sins to one another such that we may be forgiven and to pray for one another such that we may be healed. Salvation and healing is spoken in the same breath in scripture. And so with the confidence you have in God to boldly approach his throne, knowing that you are forgiven and set free, we ought to have the same confidence when we approach sickness and infirmity in our world, knowing that God has given us the power and authority to declare His kingdom and to see the sick healed. We need to walk in power, folks. Amen. Major sidetrack, but I hope you hear my pastoral heart in this. And I'm praying for you folks this day for whatever sickness and infirmity may be in your life. You know, I just sense, even in the middle of worship, I just sense that uh, there, there's someone in our community or perhaps you're listening to this stream that you have a doctor's report due this week. And I just sense that there's so much anxiety and fear in your heart, even as you anticipate that report and you are expecting a bad report. And I pray over you this day for the peace of God to invade your body, to quell all anxiety. But that same peace that crushes the head of Satan to come and establish God's kingdom in your body. And I speak to your body right now to be healed, to be made whole. This is what Jesus has paid for for you through the cross. This is what we sing about, His blood, His atoning work on the cross. We speak wholeness and health to your body. And I also sense that there's another person that, that I, I just see like a ring around your head. 
just tremendous pressure on your head and you're going through migraines, uh, the severe head pain. I speak to you, shalom, peace to your head right now in Jesus' name. All pain to go in the mighty name of Jesus. Christ, this is what you've paid for. And so as your body, as your people, we appropriate your word this day. We trust in the promise of scripture. We trust in the work of Calvary. You have done so. You have accomplished this for us. And so today, your people, exercise this promise in faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, we are on week four of this series, Our Missional Life. And I don't know how it's been for you, but uh, it's been... Uh, so enlightening. I love uh, last week's talk by Pastor Liao. Uh, that was an amazing talk on hospitality, on loving uh, your neighbor. And uh, one of the things that I really came away with that is, uh, you know, we can't love our neighbor if we don't know who our neighbor is, right? You know, uh, and uh, trying to, uh, in very small, uh, practical ways, uh, small steps towards uh, getting knowing getting to know neighbors in my estate, you know, saying hi in the lifts and, uh, uh, you know, greeting them and, and asking questions. And so I think we all can make certain small steps towards uh, walking in that uh, commandment, really, to love our neighbor. Uh, and so we are on week five of, of this series, and I have a talk for you this morning. Uh, it's, uh, you know, our, our whole plan for this series is uh, we are going to talk about some stuff that is perhaps a bit more conceptual, theological, but the whole goal is uh, towards the end of the series, we're going to distill it down to several practices that we can participate in as a community in walking out this missional life. And so I have a talk for you this morning. I've titled my talk, Do the Works of Jesus. Now, I want to begin with uh, sharing this story that's uh, a bit heartbreaking. Uh, I chanced upon this story fairly recently, and this was a story from the 2004 uh, Olympics. Uh, there was this shooter named Matt Edmonds, and he participated in the air rifle competition. And he was this brilliant American shooter that was coming onto the scene. And uh, the story goes, uh, the competition was coming to uh, its end. It was the last shot. And Matt Edmonds was placed first uh, among all the competitors. Uh, and the story goes, all he had to do was score a mediocre shot. He just had to land uh, the, 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 was it bullet? Is it bullet? Your air rifle, right? It's a pellet, pellet, pellet on the board somewhere, just a mediocre score, and he would win gold. And the story goes, he composed himself. He took aim. He breathed and he did all the right air rifle things. I don't know what they are. Composed himself and he shot. And he landed on the bullseye of the target. And then you turn your eyes on the screen and Matt Edmonds instantly dropped from the first place to the eighth place after landing that shot. And the reason was that he had shot the wrong target. He had shot... Uh, the target that was next to his intended target, and he ended up finishing on the, in the eighth place, even though he landed on the bullseye, and it was a phenomenal shot. And I can't help but think about that story in light of the life of faith, in light of your life and mine. Whether, you know, uh, we are pursuing life and pursuing certain goals and vision uh, for our life, that may land us on the wrong target, that, may, that we will end up misliving, that we will end up pursuing things 
that are not God's intended purpose and vision for us. We may end up shooting and aiming at the wrong target. And this is the whole goal of this, story, uh, this series, A Missional Life. We are, after discovering not just what we want to do in life, but what God has called us, purposed us, destined for us to do on the earth. Walter of, uh, William Irvine says this, that there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. Isn't that such a haunting quote that there is a real danger that we would mislive, that we would come to the end of our lives. And you know, it, it, we, we don't do tombstones in Singapore, but, but there's a dash between the day you are born and the day that you die. And we'll look back upon that dash you know, uh, at the end of uh, our lives and some of us might, might realize at the end that we have completely mislived and pursued things that aren't worthy, as William Irvine said. Now in the midst of all this, Jesus' words pierce through. And he says that I have come that you may have life and live it to the full, life in all its fullness, that there is a possibility that we would live a fulfilling life, a life that is genuinely meaningful and valuable. This is the promise of Jesus. And I believe all of us deep down wants to live that kind of life. We want to live a life of consequence. No one wants to just participate in a daily grind, earn a decent keep, retire on a decent amount of savings, and then go to heaven. I think deep down, all of us desire to live a life of consequence, that which contributes towards God's kingdom. Or in language that I grew up with, we all desire to hit the mark of God. We all desire to hit the mark. We all desire to hit the mark. So what is the mark? What is the mark? What is the pursuit that is to consume our very lives? What is that one cause that is worthy of us giving our whole lives, all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, resource to? What is the mark? Now, there's a verse in the Gospel of Luke that says this, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like, their teacher. This is very Mr. Miyagi language. The student is not above the teacher. But everyone, when they're fully trained, when they follow well, when they learn the lessons, they will be like their teacher. And it is the words of Jesus, and he sings this, that if you are my disciple, if you follow me, if you heed my words, if you learn from me, if you practice my ways, you will be like me. Isn't that a phenomenal and astounding promise that the same Jesus that we read about in Scripture, in the Gospel, the same Jesus that went about declaring the Gospel, the same Jesus that went about tearing down the works of the enemy, the same Jesus that went about healing the sick, delivering the oppressed, that same Jesus says to you and me that if you are my student, if you follow me, you will get to do what I did. Isn't that an extraordinary promise? Galatians 4, chapter 19, Paul says this, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here we see Paul's agonizing pastoral heart and passion for Christ to be formed in God's people. And so we gather 
folks, that this goal, right, that we set out as a church, our passion statement, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the works of Jesus, is to be our life's consuming passion until Christ is formed in you. This is Paul's heart for the people of God. This is Jesus' heart for you and me, that we will do what he did, that we will be like him. And our hope is in these next few weeks, folks, on this journey of our mission of life, that we would not just hear theories and concepts, but the Holy Spirit will breathe upon your heart anew, such that you may grow in passion, such that you may have fresh vision for your life beyond just the, ma- the mundane things, beyond just what society expects of you to do, but the Spirit will breathe upon your heart a kingdom vision to be discontent with where you are in life, such that you may be moved into radical action, to do, folks, the Jesus stuff, to do the Jesus stuff. That is the goal of life. Now, let's begin this morning reading a couple of verses as we go into this time of exploration together. Again, the title is this, Do the Works of Jesus. This is one-third of our passion statement, and it is very much something that we're so passionate about because the Christian life isn't just good emotions that we feel as we sing certain songs. It isn't just hearing a good talk and leaving with a bunch of information. The Christian life, it looks like abiding in Christ, but that's not the entire verse such that we may bear fruit. In our abiding, in being with Christ, there is something that is ought to be developed, that ought to come out of our lives, that ought to be produced from our lives, such that the world may be blessed. Do the works of Jesus, folks. Let's read a couple of verses. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 10. This is familiar. This is the Lord's prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Reading from Acts chapter 10, starting verse 36. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures and we thank you for the promise of scripture this day and how you've given us a vision for how we ought to live our lives, what we ought to pursue. And God, we ask even as we explore your words this day, speak to us, we pray. Move upon our hearts. Move upon our hearts, O God, to respond to your word, to respond to you, O Lord. Illuminate this time, we pray, in your name. Amen. Now, how many of you have seen Marvel's latest series, What If, on Disney Plus? Now, this series has concluded already and it's been some months since it has and I've given you enough leeway to watch this series. And so you cannot go, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, I'm going to turn off the screen. You have no 
grounds too. I've given you enough time. But anyway, I'm not really spoiling it. But What If is on Disney Plus, right? And you know, without going too much in the story, uh, on the risk that some of you might just really turn off the stream, uh, one of the characters in this Marvel series, uh, What If, uh, is this being called The Watcher. The Watcher. And this Watcher is someone who, uh, in the story, lives outside of the affairs of the world, and he just observes, and as his name suggests, watches. He watches the affairs of the world, and this being is, uh, in some sense, omnipresent. He's everywhere, I think. Uh, Tim might correct me, but hey, you know, he observes everything, he watches everything, and he knows what is happening, and he knows what it will lead to. He watches the affairs of the world, and this being has taken a vow to not intervene to not get involved with the affairs of the world, no matter how, uh, you know, no matter how uh, uh, dire the circumstance, no matter how things might turn toward uh, a, a negative consequence, he has taken a vow to not be involved in the affairs of the world. He does not intervene. He's just watching as an outsider. And now, in thinking about the Watcher, uh, and, and of course the series goes, the Watcher then has these moral dilemmas about like, should I get involved, should I not get involved? And ultimately he slowly inches towards getting involved. And now we often think of God, our Father, as a kind of Watcher, don't we? God is this being that knows all. God is this being that observes and watches all. But God does not want to be involved. But God does not want to intervene. He just lets things play out. He is distant, far off, uninvolved, cold, observing, watching, not intervening. This is God. But it's really different from the God of the Bible that's revealed to all of us. The God of the Bible is revealed as one who isn't distant or far off, but has come close. He's Emmanuel. God of the Bible is revealed to not just be one who observes, but is intimately, intricately involved in the affairs of the world. The God of the Bible is revealed as one who became human in the person of Jesus Christ to be in the world for the sake of the world. Jesus will say this about the Father in John chapter 5. My Father is always at work to this very day and I am too working. And I don't know about you, but this verse brings me so much hope that in the midst of circumstance, in the midst of anything that I face, God is at work. God is at work. God is always at work. He isn't distant, far off. He is involved. He is present. He's Emmanuel. In my inability, God is at work. When none go with me, God is at work. In my trials, God is at work. In my circumstance, God is at work. And so we gather through Scripture that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is at work in our world. This is the stunning claim of Scripture that God is always involved in the affairs of the world. Now the word work in this text would translate to achieving, producing, accomplishing, or bringing something into fruition, into fullness. God is at work to do what? To bring that which we just read into fruition. His kingdom to come. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's with that that we come back to that text that we just read in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. This is a stunning verse, right? The Lord's Prayer. 
Jesus is thus getting down to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the only occasion in all of the Gospels where the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to do something. Nowhere else in all Scripture do we, does it note that the disciples came to Jesus to be taught or asked to be taught. Nowhere do they go, Jesus, hey, Jesus, teach us how to heal the sick. Nowhere does it go, hey, Jesus, teach us how to cast out demons. This is the only occasion in all of Scripture, in all of the Gospels, where the disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to do this. And they said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's almost as though they know that the secret source, the source of all of Jesus' power, what gave him the ability to do what he did on the earth, stemmed from this abiding in God that was very much a part of his life. Teach us how to pray Jesus. And this is a fascinating portion, right? But I want to zone in on just one particular phrase in the Lord's Prayer. And that is the phrase, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And I think it's really important and crucial for us to understand what this phrase means and for us to understand what is the kingdom of God. Because this missional life, this missional pursuit, is not just about bettering the world. It is not just about doing kind things. It is not just about improving things around. That is far too low a view of what God has called you and I to do. He has called us on this missional life to be about His mission. And His mission is captured in that shorthand, your kingdom come. So what is the kingdom? I think it includes social justice. It does. I think it includes caring for the broken. I think it involves healing the sick. But these are all parts and not the whole. The whole is the kingdom of God. Or it's used in some other places as the kingdom of heaven. Now, many of us think when we read the Bible, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as this future ethereal cloud palace kind of place that we go to when we die. Now, I don't think that's all the way helpful because that is, what, that is not what Jesus has meant when he says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. is isn't what Jesus means when he uses this phrase. And I think it's so crucial that we get this right. Dallas Willard says this, what you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. If you present the gospel as what well, is essentially a theory of the atonement and you say, if you accept this theory of the atonement, your sins are forgiven. And when you die, you will be received into heaven. There is no basis for discipleship. And discipleship, we know, it is this imperative of how we ought to live life on the earth. If we reduce the gospel to just, hey, receive Jesus' atoning work and then you go to heaven, there is really no imperative for how we ought to live on the earth. We just simply wait to die and then we receive God's kingdom. But Jesus seems to suggest that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not some future reality. It is something that can be experienced in the here and now. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived. Now, the majority of the talk will be answering this question. What is the kingdom of God? What did Jesus mean by this? And what does it, did it mean to his first century followers? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at the at beginning of Jesus' ministry, he traveled around the countryside announcing this, the kingdom of God is at hand. What did it mean? During his first large-scale teaching, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? 
Now, the kingdom of God was central to Jesus' message, and he called people to act in response to this imminent arrival of God's kingdom. It is arriving, it's coming. Now, first, as modern readers and listeners, many of us don't have a concept of a kingdom, right? We live in a democracy, you know, we have an elected government, and so this language of king, kingdom, royalty is often lost to first world audience who live in a democracy like us. Now, it would be helpful to understand what kingdom meant to the first century readers and listeners. Dallas Willard summarizes that kingdoms are about the range of effective will. The range of effective will. A king has a kingdom when there's a territory in which everything he wants to have happen, happens. It's about range of effective will. He has both the right and the power to make what he desires, what he dreams, a reality. And that's what is meant when we use the phrase kingdom. Now, when we understand kingdom through this lens, then we would have language to understand that there can be large geopolitical kind of kingdoms, but also small local kingdoms and even kingdoms of the heart. Kingdoms can be a physical place, a piece of land or arena. Or, for example, modern kingdoms might include the kingdoms of Google, the kingdoms of Tesla, Elon Musk, or the metaverse, uh, if you're familiar with whatever is happening. There can be kingdoms of both, uh, that, that look both physical, but there can be kingdoms of the heart, kingdoms of reality. Now, the kingdom of God, if I can put it succinctly, in light of all that we heard is this, it is the dream that God has for the world that is marked by love, joy, peace, justice, compassion, and goodness. The kingdom of God is what the world looks like when Jesus has his way. When Jesus has full range of effective will, when his will is done. And so why do we pray this prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because our world does not look like the dream of God. Our world in many ways, in many aspects, contradicts what God's intended will is to be. It does not look like God's dream. His kingdom is not fully realized and established because there are many competing kingdoms in the world that seek to pull us into ruin. Now, this brings me to my second point. We need to understand what the kingdom of God meant to first century Jewish people living in Israel. To the first century Jewish mind, the kingdom of God was God's rule and reign on the earth. It was when God's will was perfectly executed and fulfilled, not just in their own lives, but in human society and creation at large. The kingdom would have practical implications for every area of life. Now, this was a world filled with conflicting and competing empires. And so the first century Jewish community yearned for the kingdom of God to finally arrive because to them it meant my oppression is coming to an end. No longer will I be subjugated. No longer will I be down and low on the social hierarchy, uh, social hierarchical status. I will be restored. The kingdom of God will be restored. And so in God's future kingdom to the Jewish audience, Israel's enemies will be defeated. The promised Messiah will sit on David's throne. And there will be true peace, true shalom, wholeness, happiness, security, and an end to all war. And so when Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was finally near, he was building on their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their aspirations in, in this new 
soon coming kingdom where all things will be made new and right. Now, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God was near, he was stating that the world that they were living in was not a place where God's desires, purposes and values were lived out. Their world was broken and sinful, but an alternative kingdom was soon coming. Jesus was not proclaiming just an end to geopolitical kingdoms. He's saying that there is coming to an end to what he calls and what scripture calls the kingdoms of the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now we know in Scripture, because of, the human, because of human sin in Genesis 3, authority and dominion over the world is given to Satan. The world has a ruler and his name is Satan. Before beginning his ministry, Jesus confronts Satan, the current ruler of the kingdom of this world. Now this notion of the devil, spiritual warfare, has almost become a relic of the past, right? It's often reduced as outdated, superstitious thinking and even something we explain away with modern advances in psychology and human understanding. But hear me in saying this, though we may have intellectually and culturally pushed out the supernatural from our thinking, it is very much still reality. We live in a world of conflicting and competing kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God that Jesus is is arriving, is coming to the scene and there is the kingdoms of the world governed by Satan that seeks to form our loves and longings. And even though we push it out of our minds intellectually and culturally, we see it subconsciously creeping through art, movies and stories because beneath our suppressing, we know this to be true. We know this to be true. Now, three times in the Gospels, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. That word ruler, it's a political term to describe the highest position of the government. To Jesus, Satan, this creature, is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And to Jesus, he is this real intelligence behind much of the evil we see in our world and society. And the Bible tells us that Satan's end goal is to murder, is to wipe out all life. John 8 says that he is a murderer from the beginning. The devil in the story of scripture is at war with God himself and at war with this vision of kingdom on earth. Life in all its fullness, the devil is at complete odds against this. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Now, why did I spend a good five minutes talking about the devil and Satan in relation to the kingdom of God? Because hear me in saying this, if we remove a personal, literal Satan or evil from the world, we would lack a clear explanatory power for why things are so wrong and so broken. There is a reason why things are wrong and broken in the world, and it's because evil exists, Satan exists. This is the enemy, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of the kingdom of God. And if we don't have Satan as a part of our framework to which how we interact and understand the world, we will very easily demonize people and make them our enemy. And we will end up demonizing the people we are called 
to reach, tempted to turn other people into Satan. However, Scripture claims that there is a personal evil embodied in the person of Satan that is a real force in this world. And it's with that as a backdrop. Satan, the devil, his schemes, his plots, his desires to see the end of life that Jesus announces his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he announces it not just as a message of possibility, but it is imminent. It has come. It has arrived. Now, this announcement that Jesus makes, right, and what we often call the gospel, is actually a borrowed term. Now, when the Romans said they won a battle, they released riders into all of the Roman Empire, and they would yell, Roma Victor, and recount the military victory in all these towns. They would announce this. They would shout it out. They would say, we have won. We have triumphed. And they would recount the stories of their military might and victory. Now, that announcement was called gospel. It was called the gospel. Good news. Or what they would term euangelion, which is where we get the word evangelism from. Gospel, this act of pronouncing victory, might. There's a change in the way things are done here. The gospel has come. So Jesus arrives into the scene and says, the kingdom of God is breaking in. I'm here to destroy sin, Satan, death, and hell. I have an announcement that the kingdom of God is advancing in this world. And Jesus is saying, I want you to realize that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived and it's breaking in. And this is good news. So therefore, repent. Turn away from false kingdoms. Turn away from all that you're doing and cast your whole life your whole soul, your mind, your strength unto this kingdom that has come to the scene. Things are never going to be the same again. Now, this is weighty but, and heavy and dense, but it's so crucial for us to understand that this is what God has called us to pursue. Now, along with redefining you know, the arrival of the kingdom as not some ethereal cloud palace thing that we go to when we die, Jesus also redefines entrance into this kingdom. The kingdom of God is available to all who repent and believe. In a time where social stratification was a very real experience thing, Jesus said that all who repent and believe are granted entrance into my kingdom. No matter your lineage, no matter your wealth status, no matter where you stand in the social packing order, you are invited into this kingdom, into my rule, into my reign into shalom. And so we're invited into God's kingdom, folks, all of us, if we were to repent and believe. And so to sum up, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying, one, in light of all the other kingdoms of the world, all other cultural forces at play, repent and turn and give yourself to my kingdom. All other kingdoms will fail you. All other kingdoms will disappoint you. All other kingdoms are temporary, but my kingdom is where life is. My kingdom is where we can put our whole hope and trust because it stands forever. And he's also saying this, that there is coming an end to the kingdom of the world. There is coming an end to Satan's rule and dominion. There's coming an end to the effects of the curse. There's coming an end to darkness. My kingdom has been inaugurated. My kingdom has arrived and it is slowly taking ground. 
such that the whole earth may be full, filled with the fullness of the glory of God. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to preach this good news. God's kingdom is at hand. No longer do we have to tolerate with darkness. No longer do we have to tolerate with things that contradict the cross. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus not only preached the gospel, he demonstrated it. He demonstrated. He not only preached that the kingdom of God has come, he demonstrated the kingdom. He showed us signs for what God's kingdom will look like when it's fully realized. Acts chapter 10, it says this in, in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus in Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went about doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. One author describes the miracles of Jesus as the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Whenever Jesus healed the sick in our world, on the earth, it showed us, hey, this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is a preview, a foretaste of when things are made right, when God's full, the full range of His effective will, when His dream is fully realized. This is what happens. Sick people get made well. The dead come to life. The oppressed, the bound up are set free. This is what I've come to do. This is the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that a stunning vision? God's kingdom, preach and demonstrate it and realize. But here is the astounding news, the stunning news of the gospel. And that is this, that God doesn't just want to preach the gospel. He doesn't, doesn't want to just demonstrate it. He doesn't, just doesn't want to, uh, 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 you know, have people adopt a worldview. But He has called us to participate in this with Him. He works and advances His kingdom. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't want to do it without you and me. He has invited us. He has not just redefined entrance into the kingdom. He has not just redefined what the kingdom is. He has redefined how we ought to relate with His kingdom. He has not called us to passivity, but to participation. All through the Bible, from Genesis to the very end, we see a God who yearns to be with His people, and we see a God who yearns to use His people, to have His people partner along with Him in seeing His will, His kingdom established on the earth. Can God do it on His very own? Yes, but He refuses to because He's invited us into this story. He's given us this great grace and privilege to along with Him be heralds of this soon coming kingdom where everything will be made right. This is the great privilege on mission, folks. We have been invited into God's story. It's not out of our good conscience or good morals, but we have been through the Spirit, our hearts coming alive such that we may walk in and be grafted into the story that God has started from the beginning of time. Now this invitation is best summarized in Jesus' words where he says, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We see three parts in Jesus' invitation and vision for discipleship. First off, intimacy. Come, follow me, be with me, come to me, live with me, abide in me. And then he says, I will make you. And this is a word of transformation. I will form you. I will disciple you. 
I will see you transform. I will see my image formed in you. I will make you. There's this promise of transformation that though we may struggle today, though some of us grapple with sin, though some of us battle dysfunctions for a number of years, but there's this promise in Scripture that when we come to Christ, He will make us into His image. Come to me and I will make you. And it doesn't just end there, folks. He says, fishers of men, there's this commissioning. I will make you into fishers of men. And this is a first century euphemism, which doesn't mean that they will go and throw rods at human beings and catch them by the mouth. But fishers of men was a, a phrase that will mean teacher, one who captures the hearts, the attentions of men. I will cause you to do what I did. This is commission. So God has called us to not just be, to not just become, but to do what he did. Mike Brand says this, simply put, mission is God's activity of love toward the world. He is a sending God, a going God, a God who incarnates himself in a specific time and context so that every person may come to know and love him. To be a follower of Jesus means you too are called to be a missionary. Each and every follower has his calling. If that was what Jesus did, then we, his followers, are to do likewise. Going in mission is not an optional extra, an upgrade for the mature disciple. Going in mission is fundamental to the journey of discipleship. God has called us to do this, to be, to become, to do. And if I can distill it down further, to be missional is this, is to join in what God has already started in seeing his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All the pursuits in our life, however noble, pure, and true, is to be grafted into this grand vision that Jesus has cast for all of us, for his disciples, and today more than disciples, to pursue this kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God, that which inaugurates the fullness of His glory, that which wars against the kingdom of darkness. We are invited into participating in this work. And good news is God doesn't just wait for us to be perfect, to be whole before inviting us into mission. We see again and again that God doesn't call perfect people, He calls just people, broken in their inability, and he invites them into mission. There's this scene from The Simpsons where Homer Simpson cracks open the Bible, and he makes this statement. He says, oh my gosh, look at all these people. They're all sinners, except for this guy. And by this guy, he meant Jesus. Isn't that quite a realization that every single person in Scripture, all of the great things that they did for God's glory, the mighty miracles, the wonderful things, all of them, sinners broken and imperfect, and yet God used them for His glory. What does it say about us? God can surely do the same. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this, what is the kingdom of God revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus that I am to continue in? This is what we've inherited, missional life. This is not just a new spanking invention because the world is coming apart, it seems. Missional life stems from the mission of God, that which has been inaugurated from the beginning of time, that which was ratified in the life and ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God. 
this is what we're here to do and establish. So what is the mission of Jesus? What are the works of Jesus? What are the works we're called to do? What is, you know, in the words of John Wimber, the Jesus stuff, doing the stuff? I have a short list, you know, as we come to a close real soon. And here's a short list. First off, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38, I have the verses on the screen. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Come on. That is what we've been called to do, to destroy the works of the evil. And he came to save sinners. Though we can't save them in our own capacity, we can create room. We can live a life compelling enough. We can be invitational. We can share the gospel, preach the good news. He came to save sinners. He also came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and save the ones who were down and out, who were outcasted were tossed aside. He came to seek and save the lords. He came to preach the gospel. He came to announce that this kingdom has come. When we preach the gospel, how do we preach it? We preach it as, you know, hey, you know, accept this good news, sign this form, or prayer, prayer, and bam, you have a direct entry into heaven. But that is not what the gospel is. The gospel is this. God's kingdom is coming. It's coming real soon. It's going to come in this fullness, and everything is going to change. And this kingdom is where you find life meaning, fulfillment, purpose. This kingdom is where you come face to face with a king that you truly long for. And this kingdom means that all other kingdoms are coming to an end. That is the gospel. And he came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve. Give his life a ransom for many. And it also says in Luke 7 that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. If you know this, that this was Jesus' invitational love to a people who are outcasted, drunkards, gluttons, sinners, tax collectors, people that were cast aside, that were not uh, uh, thought of to be clean in society. Jesus comes close to them and shows them mercy. I experienced a measure of this uh, over the last couple of weeks when I had my spots in my hands. The delivery guy did not want to touch me. He chucked my foot on the floor and it's like, pick it up, leper. You know, and, 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 and it's like, do not touch me. Or we have people in society, don't we, that are deemed untouchables, that are deemed unworthy, that are worthy of scorn and shame. But yeah, these are the very ones that Jesus came to save, to show mercy to work. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll spend time talking about the miracles of Jesus, how to pray for the sick, how to prophesy. We'll talk about the message of Jesus, what he came to say, what he came to do, what he has called us to do, the miracles, the message of Jesus. But what we often don't talk about is the mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus, which is very much missional. Missional mercy. Jesus came to show mercy. Mercy, the kingdom of God, is a kingdom of mercy. And why is this so relevant for us to hear today? It's because of this. Our culture today, in many ways, regards shame as a form of entertainment. We regard shame as an entertainment. Scandals, failures, relational breakdown, what we see on the media, it has become entertainment. It has captured our attention. Whether you think of it as being informed or not, in many ways we are entertained by the failures, the breakdown, the scandals that people walk through. This kind of arrogant criticism and flippant judgment has been caught by one author as the pornification of shame and judgment. It's this pleasure that we take in someone else's failures and shortcomings and the way we commoditize them for our own pleasure and entertainment. 
Now, this isn't new. All throughout history, we, we see cultures having a concept of shame, shame culture, where people's reputations are crushed under a weight of judgment. One magazine describes the pornification of shame and judgment as cheap, temporary chill at the expense of another human being, but without any personal accountability or commitment to that human being. That's what we do. We hack people's lives into pieces through harsh words, media posts, outbursts of anger, withdrawal. And when this judgmental spirit takes over our life, it creeps into every facet of being. And we slowly grow to be unmerciful, contentious, contentful people. Shame porn is the commodification of people for the sake of unaccountable criticism and is repulsive to a spirit of grace. And that is why we need mercy in our world, folks. In light of this kingdom, it is built upon tearing down folks, shaming them such that the masses may be entertained. What does the kingdom of God look like in response, in retaliation to this? It looks like mercy. It looks like mercy. There's this book written by Pope Francis and he titled the book this, The Name of God. It's mercy. The name of God is mercy. He wrote this to remind the world that the mercy of God is not just some peripheral part of faith. It is the living heart of it. Mercy is not passive, but scandalously proactive. It means not just waiting for the prodigal to come home, but going to where sinners are in the pigsty of the sin and extending mercy. Jesus' brother, James, would say, mercy triumphs over judgment. And that word triumph will imply a battle, a victory that emerges out of war. Mercy must defeat the desire to be right. It must defeat the desire to criticize. It must defeat the desire to judge. It must defeat the desire to point out the fault. It must defeat our impulse to take joy, pleasure, entertainment in the failure of another. The way of mercy, this missional mercy is the way of Jesus. It's the way we ought to live and it's the way the world longs for. So what of, along with caring for the poor, praying for the sick, opening up our homes, we would grow to be a merciful people, extend this mission of mercy to those who are down, out, shame, scorned by society because this is the heart, ministry and mission of Jesus we are to continue in. Close off with one final story before I have to bend, come up. Now, in his book, Streams of Mercy, author Mark Rutland tells of this story of being invited to a hospital at the height of the AIDS epidemic to minister at the deathbed of a young gay man who was dying from the disease. And the man says to Mark Rutland, who was a pastor, you must hate me. You must absolutely hate me. And Rutland replied, why would I hate you? And he replied, I've had several thousand men as lovers since I was 12. And Rutland shared with the young men about God's love and grace, how Jesus came to save and seek the lost, to save the world and not condemn it. Now this man was expecting judgment, but instead found love and he surrendered his life to Christ in that moment. Now knowing that he would die shortly, he asked Rutland to preach at his funeral. And Rutland felt insecure and overwhelmed by this, and he, would, he asked himself, what will a Christian pastor say to a room of full of people who have been burned, hurt, ostracized, and scorned, and shamed by the church? 
And this man replies as he's on his deathbed. He says this, At my funeral, there'll be a lot of gays, but preach mercy. Mercy. That is the word that the world longs to hear. Mercy. That is the word that is to come out of followers of Jesus' lips more than anything else. A word of mercy. It's by His mercy that you've been invited into His kingdom. It's by His mercy you've been given a calling and a purpose. And now, it is this same mercy we're called to extend to others as our missional call and imperative. So folks, may we preach mercy to all who feel like failures in our world. May we preach mercy to all who feel burdened by the sting of sin. May we preach mercy to those who feel that they will never measure up. May we preach mercy to those who feel that the kingdom of God has shut them out. May we preach mercy to those who think they don't deserve it. And may we preach mercy to our own hearts that God has called us, saved us, He has come for us. And now, by His mercy, He has given us a calling and purpose to be missional. Not so that we may earn our own righteousness, but we have been given this great privilege of being missional because He has accepted us and welcomed us in this kingdom. And now we, in grace, get to participate in this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the missional call. Right, can we all stand in this place and I'll have the band back on stage. If you're at home, I invite you to lean in as we close out this time in prayer. Now, in usual fashion, I have some questions up on the screen that I'd love for you to ponder and think about in light of all that we have heard. First off is this, what do I see? The life and ministry of Jesus. What do I see in the Gospels that is so compelling about the life of Jesus? What makes Him such a wonderful Savior that men will give their lives, not just their time, their lives. They will suffer and die for Him. What's so compelling about the life of Jesus? This kingdom that, is pre- that He preached and demonstrated. Next question is this, how can I align myself more to this kingdom of God over and above the kingdoms of this world? How can I wholeheartedly pursue God's kingdom. Next, how do I begin to join in the mission of Jesus? What do I need to do in my life? How can I reorder my priorities? How can I position myself to join in the mission of Jesus? The last and the most probing question is this. Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of love? And this is the story of gospel. Is Jesus stopping for the one? Is Jesus stopping for the sake, for the broken. It's Jesus stopping for those shame and scorn by others. He was very much willing to be inconvenienced. It, you may say it's the sign of love, the willingness to be inconvenienced, the willingness to go outside of one's comfort zone. And so will we be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of God's kingdom? It may look like stopping and talking to someone in need. It may be looking like sharing the gospel even though it's uncomfortable and may cause you social capital in your workplace. It may look like praying for the sick even though I can give you a paracetamol and just be done with it. But to take a risk and to step out and say, I want to pray for you because I believe in the wonder-working power of Jesus. Will you be willing to be a convenience for the sake of love 
for God's kingdom such that this may be manifested in our lives. Why do we pray for the sake? Why do we do these things? Because it heralds God's coming kingdom. And when people see the glory of God on display, this is what draws them in into the saving knowledge of Christ. Why do we do this? It's our mission. It's what Christ has called us to do. So what does the kingdom look like in your world, in your context? And how can you do works of Jesus? So I'd love to leave you with these questions to think about, to ponder. How can I position my life to pursue God's kingdom in its fullness? What has God called me to do in my context? How can I live out the works of Jesus? And so, wherever you're at, I invite you right now, just close your eyes and come to God in prayer with your hands lifted before you. Say, God, speak to me. Spirit of God, move upon my heart. Illuminate in me a fresh vision for your kingdom. God, I hear the words of Scripture and I hear your proclamation, your announcement. Your kingdom has come to the earth. And God, I pray this day, may my heart be tethered to this kingdom. May my affections, desire, dreams, pursuits be tethered to this kingdom. No longer will I think of your kingdom as some future thing I get to go to. But may your kingdom be a here and now thing. May your kingdom be first off be established in my life. May I acknowledge in every way that you have all rule, all reign, all authority in my life. Jesus, you are Lord. God, speak to us, your people, this day. Stir hearts to join in your mission work. Lord, we repent of self-righteous thinking. Repent of ways we think that we are morally superior to the other. We repent of ways where we think that we can do enough good things to merit righteousness. We cannot. We enter your kingdom by grace. We join in your mission by grace. We don't do things to earn our way into your love. You have loved us. And now out of the abundance of this love that we've received, we overflow into the world. And we offer our lives, our bodies, our time, our resources as a gift to the world. Christ, you, has offered, you have offered yourself as a gift to us, to all of humanity. And today we join in your way and offer ourselves as a gift to the world. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. The worship team is going to lead us back in the song and this is the time where we respond to God. We sing to Him as a way of affirming what is truth as revealed through Scripture. We sing to Him as a way of response to all that we've heard. We sing to Him for His worthy glory of majesty of exaltation. We sing to Him this day as a response. So I invite you right now, wherever you're at, to participate in this holy act of singing to a holy God. It's not a moment for us to sit and lie and be still, but this is a time where we stand up, hands lifted up, saying, God, I respond to you. Speak to me this day. And so I invite you, wherever you're at at home, join me in standing. Join me in lifting your hands. Let's sing to our God this day. Amen.